I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we're talking about political science with Andrea Jones-Roy. So grab your research data. And let's get civical. believe it we've lived to see another week oh stellar praise be praise be under his eye uh today <laughs> is uh is our it's it's a very special day because this is our first episode where we have a guest in quarantine not with us obviously we respect cuomo <laughs> and his roles <laughs> you guys she's so very cool and i'm so excited to talk to her we are talking to andrea jones roy she is a professor at nyu she's a comedian she's a circus performer you guys she is the ultimate multi-hyphenate and she is here with us today we're going to talk about political science like wtf is that what is that honestly mean? honestly um, Yeah. And we're going to talk about politics and behavior and how those two things interplay. We've got some questions for her and we're just going to have a discussion. And it's I'm so excited to talk to you, Andrea. Hooray. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for indulging talking about uh, political science. Almost no one wants to talk about it. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Oh, we want to we want to crack it open. (laughs) We want to look at the underbelly. The (laughs) The seedy underbelly of political science. Oh, do I have some scandals for you. 
Oh yeah. my gosh. Well, I would love to start us off with what could be the most basic question of the day, Perfect. Perfect. which is I would love to know from you what is political science? <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. obviously know what it is. You know, I could explain it to you in depth. I could write a paper, but why don't you tell right. the class <laughs> what it is? That's exa- that is the teaching uh, philosophy, by the way. A student asks you a question you don't know the answer to, you're like, that's great. What do you think? Yeah, like, perfect. tell me what you that's would say. That's correct, and I'm going to look it up later and then correct it without telling you I'm correcting you. Uh, <laughs> and now I've given away all my secrets. No, honestly, that's a very difficult question, right? Like, if you know, what is biology? It's a very fundamental right. philosophical question. So I congratulate you on that. Thank you so and much. It's actually harder than, than questions. Like when you go through a political science PhD, you have to do a, a couple of years in these like oral exams where basically all the, it's like very old school. Like the faculty come in, five of them, and they just ask you questions. Like what is, what are the causes of war and what are the this and what do we think? But none of them ask what is political science and they should because that's a very hard question. Do you like how I'm avoiding answering your question? Absolutely. Expert. But you know what? It's amazing because all you're doing is praising me and that's yeah. fine. That Perfect. is acceptable. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Which morale is- shall be high if nothing else. Yes. Okay. So political science is using scientific methods to understand politics. So it's kind of like what economics is for the economy, which is to try to do things like predict whether we're all going to starve to death or whether, you know, people are getting paid enough or understand. Uh, I shouldn't be weighing in on economics. Like, what's the effect of a minimum wage increase? Right. Is that good or bad? Right. We think about those things in economics. Uh, and in psychology, you can think about how we have like people in a laboratory experiment and we expose them to some form of like emotional pain and then see what they do and react to that. Political science is trying to understand all the messy, ugly politics uh, in the, this country and in the world through a scientific lens. So people do a bunch of statistics. They do uh, a bunch of experiments, both in the real world and what we call natural experiments, um, surveys, interviews, all that kind of stuff. So basically trying to turn the ugliness of politics from just like watching the news and being mad Mm. and putting it into things like data sets and equations to try to understand what's really happening. Why is it happening? Should it be happening? Can we or should we change it so it happens more or less? That kind of thing. That was very vague. Um, no, it's exactly what I would have said personally. Perfect. I wouldn't, Great. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have veered a- any further from that. Great. Yeah. Where this this is kind of a sub question to that, which is like, and I don't know if this is because uh, oddly enough, I don't have a degree in political science. I know. This, I'm shocked to hear that. I know yeah. it's very it's kind yeah. of shocking and devastating to know. I'm yeah. sorry to have misinformed you this far. Yeah, I've, I think I have to go. OK, I think that's I, I really talk to um, non-political scientists. Guys, thank so you so much I'll for joining us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a waste of time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just I'm curious where the sort of origins of political science come from? So that's a really good question. And, and a real political scientist, you know, someone who knows more than I do about political science would probably find fault in this. But the very high level summary that I can give you mm. is early days, like Aristotle, Plato, Machiavelli, like the boys, is, the boys, right? They're hanging out and they were like, what, you know, what is democracy? Should we have democracy? What is the ideal life? Like, how do we organize ourselves in a way that we can all prosper and blah, blah, blah. And they had complicated ideas that, you know, haunt us to this day. Like, should only people who know what the fuck is going on. Can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. Let it fly. All right, here it comes. Yeah. (laughs) Brace yourselves. (laughs) Uh, It's going to get so real, real fast. Like, you know, should only people who know what's going on be allowed to vote? Like they were thinking about that back then. And we think about that today. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And, you know, people have different answers about that. And then it kind of hung out for a while in philosophy. And then, like, in the 50s, I would say modern, quote-unquote, political science was born when we realized we could survey a whole bunch of people about, like, what do you think about politics? Do you vote? Why do you vote? Do you approve of this person? Why do you approve of this person? What are your ideals? We did a bunch of surveys. We, uh, political science in the 50s, hilariously, uh, learned, not surprisingly, that Americans know fuck all about anything. <laughs> and like, truly, like there were all these theories in the early part of the 1900s that were like, people have principles and values, and then they vote for the candidate who best represents those values so that they can, like, what is representation? They had all these like, flo- like sophisticated conversations. And then in the 50s, they did the survey, and they were like, oh, Americans don't know anything. Yeah. They don't know who's in power. They don't know like what the rules are for staying in power. And they don't even have beliefs that like go together. Like, they were like, it's insane that people believe that we should increase government spending and not tax. Like, right. like people yes. believe, like, right. so, it, so yeah. So the 50s was this like moment where everyone was like, oh no, like humans are horrible. And so basically since then, we've been using statistics and math to try to figure out like why the country functions, if it functions and what it does. But basically it was like, it was sort of like the first like big data revolution when we started surveying people. Um, and not just like polling, like one-off polling, like you see now. Yeah. Um, but it's something called the National Election Study that like pan- it's panels of people like every four years. So it will track people over a lifetime and try to figure out like when do people change their political beliefs? Why do they? How do they? The answer is almost never unless like a family member dies is pretty much the only like basically oh, wow. a big shock has to happen to you in your life for you to become like go from liberal to conservative or back. So it's it- but it's this kind of like long range thinking. Anyway, a lot of political scientists will get mad at that simplification, but that's my answer. Well, you know you. what? They can they can call in and abs- and subscribe to this podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're about to get trolled by political scientists. I am sorry. Bring it on. Yeah, we will we'll absolutely go toe-to-toe adore. With them. The we great war it. begins. Yeah, and I think part of the reason people don't really understand what political science is, I mean, if you take the two words separately, like it is the scientific study of politics, right? Like if you just flip yeah. them, it's kind of self-explanatory. But yeah. how it applies to people in their real, like in their actual daily life, right. I think is where there's like this distance between yeah. the field and people understanding what the field is. Yeah. And I don't, you know, we're trying to, you know, maybe not break that just in terms of political science, but in, in civics and kind of politics in general, we're trying to, you know, break that apart with comedy. And I think, you know, right. you do that too. And you, you know, teach students and stuff. But how do you like, how do you see, this is a horrible question. How do you see political science like I think impacting all, both people? of you not to be like weirdly meta about this, but I think all of your questions you're, you've begun with like, here's another horrible question. Yeah. <laughs> here's the worst Very. thing we've ever thought. Here's, yeah, the, here's yeah. the darkest it's of like, my oh, mind. No, it's, like, it's a great yes. question. Yeah. But it's, yeah. I, you know, it's an, apo- it's, you, you know, you say that because it's an apology, it's a form of apology because it feels like such a stupid question, right? When right. really the question is probably an important one, which is right. how how does pol- political science interact with people in their daily lives? What can we learn about people in politics through the study of political science in right. the various like little, you know, the niche areas of study that we have? Right. I mean, like some of them are more obvious, like you can study people's election, you know, their, their predisposition to, to vote in an election and who they'll vote for. Like that right. is kind of like a concrete example right. of of a direct correlation or maybe that's you would you can tell me if that's the cor- correlation correct correlation yeah okay great yeah. thank you um <laughs> a plus um, yeah. correlation not causation um yep 
And so, you know, but Columbia degree is paying dividends, by the way. They, listen, they don't this mess is the most, there. This is the yeah. most I've gotten out of it in yeah, yeah, yeah. like yeah, the great. entire time. Call the dean. Let him know. Yeah. Call the dean. Yeah, I'm appearing on the dean's podcast right after this called Debriefing Podcast with Alumni. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll weigh in. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So, what, you know, and what are some of the fields or some of the things that people are working on? However, you want to take this question of how how does political science interplay with people's daily lives? This is it's such a good question. uh, And I'm thrilled that you're asking it because I ask myself that all of the time. And it I I swing between like it's so incredibly important. We should all be thinking about it. I wish everyone would read political science papers. I love reading political science papers. They're surprisingly readable as scientific papers go. I think political scientists are pretty good writers. No big deal. Especially like. You read the, you watch the news and you're just like inundated, dated with information and they're yelling at you and everything's horrible. And you look at Twitter and everyone's mad and you're just like, this sucks. And political science is this like respite from all of that where people are like, hold on, let's just pause and try to figure out the mechanics of like what's actually happening. And that's very cool to me. On the other hand, I swing the other direction where I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't help me figure out like what to do right now. Right. Like it rarely will tell me like, if you want to make an impact, go uh, you know, knock on people's doors, maybe not right now, and try to get them to vote or donate money to Louisiana rather than Arkansas or donate, you know, whatever, right? right. It's, it's rarely that prescriptive. And I will say when I went to grad school, I thought that the field of public policy, so I got my PhD in political science, uh, but a lot of my colleagues were public policy grad students. And I thought public policy was in charge of reading political science research and then figuring out how that applies to like, you know, what government... Governor Cuomo's up to and advising it. And it turns out it's not that at all. Great. And so I went through this crisis after like six years of grad school where I was like, oh, we're just writing all this stuff and no one is paying attention to it. And so since finishing my PhD, I've been trying to like get the news out. And I honestly, like I said, sometimes I'm like, maybe it's not out for a reason because it's not immediately relevant. And other times I'm just like, everyone should be reading this all the time. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, especially as we've been locked up at pondering our life purpose. So here's here's how I think of it. And this is a brand new analogy. Just for you guys. Thank you so uh, much. Yes, you're welcome. I thought of it truly while washing dishes last night. Okay. <laughs> so it's kind of like how cl- it's like the re- political science is to politics, as is my SAT analogy, which I think they got rid of the SAT analogy. I can't remember. Political science is to politics as like climate research is to the weather. So you're not going to mm. like you, you turn to the weather for like, is it going to rain tomorrow? Can I go outside and break social distancing by going to the park, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But a climate person climate scientist can tell you like oh you know all the ice in antarctica is shrinking here's why it's shrinking and here's the broader long-term effect that's going to have on everything including probably how much it's going to rain but i can't tell you if it's going to rain tomorrow right climate scientists can't tell me that and so i had during my crisis in in my political science phd not to be confused with my current crisis but they're related (laughs) i was like i went to one of my professors and i was like why are we doing this we can't predict humans humans are idiosyncratic and they're crazy their beliefs mean nothing like whether they vote or don't has mostly to do with where they're born and and who they you know whatever and so i was like why we can't predict anything why are we doing this and she was like well same as the weather like we can't we can tell you if it's going to rain tomorrow and that's like what polls and political pundits and cnn and all that are for but we can't tell you like if it's going to rain in three weeks like no no one can tell you that because it's a chaotic system but what Political scientists can tell you the weather version of is like, we know it's cold in the winter and it's hot in the summer and it's going to be messy in the spring, you know, whatever. And so the political scientists tell us the broader trends, basically. 
but I can't, you know, the first thing people ask me when I say I'm a political scientist, one is uh, leave my house. Yeah. Uh, two <laughs> is I just show up and talk. Uh, but two is like, who's going to win the election? What's the turnout right. going to be? Yeah. And it's like, right. we can talk about the forces that contribute to that, but I can't tell you exactly. Just like I, right. don't, I can't say for sure if it's going to rain. What a weird, complicated weather related story. I, just I honestly it made it so, so much. Clear. It made so good. much sense to me. Oh, good. My earlier analogy that I never said to anyone was like, it's like a biologist can't tell you if you have cancer. And I was like, I don't, I can't speak about those things, but, <laughs> which is probably also true, but it's also not, true. I was like, I don't even know if they're related fields. It was, it's also it was sadder. It's like not as, yeah. yeah, not as fun. Yeah. yeah. And so, also all I so, do in quarantine right now is look at what the weather's doing. Yes. Because what else is there to do? <laughs> yeah. Kind of sticking with this sort of like overview of political science, you know, we, you talked about how sort of in the 50s is when we kind of started establishing the modern day political science. Between then and now, have, have there been any huge changes in the field and in the study? And, you know, mm. and if so, like, what are those changes? Yes. You you both are asking my favorite question. These are all <laughs> questions that no one has asked me, and I wish to be asked. So thank you. Uh, here for you. Here uh, for you. Yes. <laughs> we're secretly just big dorks. And it's, we're just that's the all wind. We're for. Look, I, <laughs> I just, love it. Somebody help me. <laughs> yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. Normally I'm like cornering people and shouting this stuff at them and they're trying to get away. So thank you. And I don't know if we have like six hours, seven hours, like how to time my answer for you. You know what? Well, but, you uh, just give it to us and, and yeah. I'll fix yeah. it in post. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like, this was 25 hours. It was, it was I that could be a filibuster. Okay. So big changes. The biggest ones, and let me also just uh, um, couch all of this to say that I'm speaking from a very like American political science sure. perspective in the sense that scholars in different countries have different cultures and things that they're doing, but largely American, and I think to an extent British and Western European because of blah, 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 all kinds of problematic things, right? But so this is like American political science. Big wave. So there was a big wave of uh, survey research, as I described early on. And then like, I'm going to get the timing on this wrong, but I want to say the 90s people went nuts with game theory, which is maybe, I don't know if you yeah. both are up on game theory. Uh, Lizzie, you would love game theory. The prisoner's dilemma is. Yeah. Like, oh, you yes. told you, Arden, you taught yes. me about game theory. I was like, I know, yes. I know I've been taught this. <laughs> yes. Yes. So game theory is like 10% of it is insanely cool. And 90% of it makes you want to just rip your eyes out because yep. it's like unrealistic. Why? And crazy. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the prisoner's dilemma is so amazing. So, so it's basically right. So it's mathematical models of interactions between humans, and it's strategic interactions, which are usually like non-market. So, like I'm not buying and selling something where we have a dollar, and that kind of like describes what I'm going to do. But it's like if we're like n negotiating or like have power asymmetries and trying to allocate resources, it's like this kind of bargaining, basically. Like anytime you're in a job interview, it's like a bargaining game theory, right? But the prisoner's dilemma is the best example. I won't go into it. But it's just as an aside, it's so important that I once taught a class where I told students that if they got a tattoo of the prisoner's dilemma matrix somewhere on their body that I would, could legally see, that they would instantly get an A for the class, no matter what. I love that. Oh, my and God. I, just to be like, this is how important it is. And also because the first time I ever taught it as a, as a grad student, I had to write it on my forearm because I was afraid I would forget like where the numbers go. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, this would be a cool tattoo anyway. So I taught it uh, for a few years saying that. And the last time I did it, I had to stop because I had two students get the tattoo. No. Like, yes, both on their feet, one like ankle, one like the bottom of her foot. Like I have pictures and I was just like, this is insane. This is like 
to me, evidence of like, you know, undergraduates in the United States yes. getting so stressed out about grades. Yes. yes. Yep. Like 10 years ago, they were like, haha. And, you know, two years ago, they were like, I will do that. Do you need a picture? What do you yeah. need? Right. Yeah. How, do I I prove? Name, How do I prove? How do I prove? Did you yeah, did you so... give them the A? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my God. I yeah. love that. I mean, that's how unhonorable so crazy. Is. So honorable, yeah. you know, a woman yeah. of your word. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But the point is, prisoner's dilemma is very important, but political science went nuts with math, like nuts. And, and there are many who still do it, including the NYU politics department is like very, very good at game theory, but it's very dry. And it can lead to really cool insights like the prisoner's dilemma, which basically shows that it's never rational to cooperate if you're only interacting with someone one time. But if you're interacting with them many times, it's meaningful to cooperate. So if you go to a new city, you like, you know, don't buy a train ticket and like sneak on the train. It kind of doesn't matter. But if you live there, you're incentivized to buy a train ticket right. if you can. That kind of yep. thing. Okay. But it went a little bit too far. And people were like, just like economics, where basically they were like, we can turn it all into math and predict everything. And then no one saw like the recession coming. And that was like a big eye opening moment for economics where they were like, oh, maybe our mathematical models of humans being perfectly rational and all knowing and not having biases or emotions are wrong, right? Now, political science is very into big data and all of that, but also on the rise, I think, uh, are experiments. So mm. putting people into rooms and doing, not that this is necessarily in the last 10 years, but like the kind of next wave is experiments. So putting people into rooms and saying like, all right, I'm going to show you uh, a presidential campaign ad. And half the time it's going to be a black person, half the time it's going to be a white person. And then I want to debrief and get your thoughts. And then they can detect things like, racial bias that's very subtle even though the person seeing the thing doesn't really realize that they're being racist like, but they just use different terms like he seemed aggressive you know all that kind of crap mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. stuff stuff right it's important so but it definitely has trending methods and focuses now that's the methodological side the other side is just to live in the space of like what people know political beliefs and all of that is there's been waves of like it's horrible that no one knows anything about politics and then there was a big wave in the 90s through today to an extent where it's like, you know, you don't have to be all knowing about civics. Sorry to undercut the point of the podcast, but like, you don't actually have no. to know these Just things. Just destroy us. Ne yeah. Yeah. So, so you're, you have no point, uh, but basically it helps if you do, but if mm -hmm. you don't, if you have a trusted elite, like leader, whether it's in the media or a political leader who you believe and, and like, and you vote according to what they tell you to do. Some political scientists think that basically you're voting as though you are super informed without having to put in the work of being super informed. So they're yeah. like, that can actually be a really good thing if you have someone who you trust and who leads you in a good direction. Of course, that's a huge if, right? Because right? like um, objectively, what is like, what is the good and what is the right direction? Right. And how to, how, to, how to say what's in one person's individual best interest and how to evaluate that and how do I know that person has that to look out for? And also is my own best interest, the best interest for the overall collective, et cetera. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's a very complicated question. But so that debate is raging on further where it's like, you know, I mean, right now, what I'm paying attention to a lot in COVID is like, we have two categories of people you could pay attention to. There's like political leaders, Governor Cuomo, and experts like Fauci, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And as long as they agree, it kind of doesn't matter who we're listening to. But as long as they, but if they don't agree, aka right. Trump and Fauci, or Trump and Cuomo, then it really matters because we see people behaving in very, very different ways. Right. right. And yeah. all of that still comes down to like, well, why don't people just learn for themselves what to think and do? Right. And part of it's education, part of it's having time to do it, um, yeah. interest, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors.
calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. I was listening to, not to plug another podcast, but I was listening to an episode of The Daily before that came out before COVID when they were talking about, like they had done, I think maybe some anecdotal, like spot questioning or polling or whatever to people in swing states. Basically, the question was like, how are you deciding who you're voting for? Mm -hmm. And the responses, you know, they weren't all this, but the majority were, I'm voting for somebody who I think other people will vote for. And that was so surprising to me because mm -hmm. I don't think that's I mean maybe that's just like you know if you had a you know a a graph of all of the U.S. elections and why people voted the way they did maybe that would be like an outlier you know like a reason why yeah. somebody's choosing to vote the way they are but it just seemed so shocking and so specific to this particular election because that yep. doesn't seem to be like the reason why people choose like you know we used to hear especially with Obama it was like you know, you know, I kind of feel like I want to have a beer with him. Like, I feel like I understand him right. and he understands yeah. me. Right. And then he drank the Guinness. Right. Which and... is its own weird reason to vote for right. someone. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Because the idea that, I mean, the idea that you would agree 100% with on every issue with a single person and that right. that is true for every single American is absolutely right. fucking bananas. So, right. like, that, right. the fact that there is, like, a perfect politician is ridiculous. You will never right. find somebody who right. you agree with 100%. So stop trying. I mean, and you look at any, you know, Twitter for one second, and there is no perfect politician that every, I mean, no, I mean, that one person, there's no politician who's perfect for me, never nope. mind the whole, you know, Democratic Party or Republican yeah. Party right. or whatever, right? So I guess, like, you know, why, 
we, I mean, maybe, maybe this is turning the conversation to politics and behavior a little bit. Is it true that like once you're kind of born into like with a particular mm. set of parents and you're grown up that way or you're, yeah. you're raised with certain beliefs and certain kind of perspectives, you know, whether they're passed directly or indirectly to you, that that is kind of your fundamental political belief system. And that's basically it. Largely. Um, but let me let me go back for one second, just because I think this is a good example of like political science intersecting with the real world, which is what you were saying just now about like, I, who am I going to vote for? And how do I decide mm. who to vote for? Is it who I definitely believe is closest to me acknowledging that they're not perfect? Or is it which is what we all hope people yeah. would do maybe or from the early days when we debated Plato was talking about democracy, that was sort of the idea. Or am I voting for the person who I think is likely to win or who other people are going to vote for? And so in political science, those are the terms for those are sincere voting versus strategic voting. Mm. And strategic goes back to this idea of the prisoner's dilemma and game theory, which is like my best move is not just what's best for me. It's what's best given what I think everyone else is going to do. Mm -hmm. And And the challenge with that is like, that's an unknown. I don't actually know what everyone else is going to do. And if I'm wrong and I vote a certain way, then I'm just like really not doing anyone any good. So, for example, just to put names on the current situation, you know, suppose a bunch of people vote for Biden because they think everyone else is excited about Biden. And then Biden becomes hypothetically the Democratic nominee. And then the election (laughs) comes around and actually no one is excited about Biden. It's just that everyone thought everyone else was excited about Biden Mm -hmm. and we don't get the turnout that we need to win. I always try to be nonpartisan, but I am a Democrat, so I'll just be transparent about yeah. my use of we there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing, and this again is game theory, I, I hated on game theory before, but it's, it's very useful for these kind of breaking down these mechanics, is like, it's better to get people to vote f- sincerely, I think, if you just have one shot at it. So it's mm-hmm. like a simultaneous game in, 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 in game theory, basically is, you know, the November election, I don't know what anyone else is going to do, I just show up and I vote. And we... That might be a little bit better as far as getting sincere votes, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, compared to the primaries, which are sequential, which is Iowa votes and then New Hampshire votes and then this and then this. And I see previously what other people are doing. Right. And that might be informing or biasing my guesses about what people are going to do in the future. Yeah. And, and that might cause me to vote in an even weirder way. And so, I right. mean, just imagine if we had done the election in, with the states, you know, South Carolina went first, maybe a whole bunch of people after Biden like sweep South Carolina would have gone out and voted for the others just to get fresh blood in or whatever. So it's right. we're just gaming it all the way through. And yeah. so at least if it's just a one shot, you can you don't get in this weird like like path dependence or what we call preferential attachment where whoever gets the most votes in one election gets the most in the next just because we think he can get the most votes. It's like the Kardashians. It's like they're famous because they're famous. Like Absolutely. he's winning because he won in the last state. And it's just it comes very complicated. Yeah. Uh but to your to your actual question Typically, where my, my advisor had this like quote from his advisor in one of his books that was like, I, I don't know who, who to attribute it to. It's not any of ours, uh, is the most important decision you make in your life is who, uh, uh, where you're born and who your parents are. <laughs> and that like influences, I mean, you look at, you know, things like social mobility and education and blah, blah, blah. And that is a huge piece of it. It's not the only piece, but it's a huge piece. And that's no exception for our political beliefs. Like, by and large, if you grow up in a home of people who are, Democrats, uh, you're more likely to be a Democrat Mm -hmm. or Republican, more likely to be Republican. Same if they're like if it's a family that's very politically active. So if your parents vote, you're much more likely to vote Mm -hmm. than if you come from a culture that doesn't vote. Right. No one actually really can understand knows for sure why some people vote and some people don't. Education tends to correlate with it. 
but we don't know that it's causal and we don't really even know what about education makes you do it. It might just be a proxy for, you know, parents who are very engaged or parents who have a lot of resources or whatever. Right. Or the, or that said, like the knowledge, no, it's okay. Like the knowledge that, that voting isn't like, it's not just the act of voting, that the act of voting leads to benefits to you. Yes. In the long run, right? Like it's it's an investment thinking about it as an investment. So that's, I'm so glad you said that because something I learned recently, so I do a show not to be like, mm, I'm going to plug my show. Uh, but it. I do a show. Plug it. Plug All right, it. here it goes. Uh, every week on Thursdays at 7 p.m. on YouTube, it's a live streaming show uh, called Ask a Political Scientist. And I had, basically I invite my favorite political scientists and selfishly just ask them the shit I want to know about. And then people in the YouTube can like also ask questions. So one that <laughs> came up basically just on, an, an idea I didn't know about, it's not my area, about efficacy of voting, which is this idea that I believe that when I vote, it will do something for me, for my community, for my country. Mm. It will it will mean something. Right. And you can think of like a disillusioned voter who's like, "Eh, what's the point? And I'm not going to show up. Right. I had someone on his name is Davin Phoenix. He's a professor of political science at UC Irvine. And he studies the relationship between emotion and race Mm. and how Mm. that affects politics. And basically he was like, look, he did a bunch of studies and experiments and said, look, many black voters don't feel that they have this voting efficacy, that they've been voting, they come from a family of voters, but nothing ever changes and their lives don't get better and leaders don't listen to them, don't give their communities what they need, et cetera. So you can become more disengaged over time, whether it's generationally or an individual person, if you believe that your vote will do something and you consistently find that it does not. And so he was like, that's one of the reasons that we see maybe lower turnout among many black Americans. Um, and we thought it was education or resources, but it might be this idea of voter efficacy. Right. I have a question about this right. subject, which is like as far like when it comes. I mean, I guess we've talked about this a little bit, but is there any other factors other than like kind of your your parents that influence what your political beliefs would be? come to be basically i i asked this because yeah. i'm i was raised in texas and i have this distinct memory of being excited when george bush was elected and like now i'm different and i'm just trying to track <laughs> i'm just trying to track what thinking about how old i am because <laughs> what i was for myself not yeah yeah so that's i guess that's my question yeah so it's i mean it's one of those where like, no one knows great perfect, the, again right um but so, so, okay, so strongest predictor, where you're from, your family, et cetera. But that's definitely not a given that right. that means that, because obviously you are I an exist. example of someone who's changed their political beliefs. I'm fascinated by people who change their political beliefs. Yeah. And even within a lifetime, even if I don't notice that I've changed my political beliefs from like, you know, uh, Republican to Democrat, like I might inch left or inch right or whatever. So it's almost mm-hmm. like, what's the magnitude of change? Like, I think I've definitely moved. I've been a Democrat my whole life. Definitely moved less left since I moved to Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just gonna happen. Some of the big moments are, uh, we talked about this a little bit, um, like a big life change will do it. So when you go to college is a big moment. It turns out when you retire is another moment, which I think is kind of cool. Hmm. Um, oh. Weirdly, not maybe weirdly, but like if your spouse dies or you get married, that can really affect your political beliefs. Sure. And that can be both in terms of like, if you marry someone who's, you're liberal and they're super conservative, um, either they might, you know, you might discuss things and both meet halfway, maybe, we hope, but probably not. Or if you marry someone who's not politically active, you might stop being as active or vice mm. versa, right? So all of these kind of like life events can change things. I don't know about the like the like gradual inching to the left or inching to the right. I imagine that happens more 
But it's just, it's very weird how certain issues, like what does it even mean to be left or right, sure. right? Like right. the <laughs> issues that we've decided are left and right are, are very strange. And that itself changes over time. Um, and the one other thing I can say that I think is interesting, it's not my area of research either, but a lot of political scientists have gone insane trying to understand polarization. Mm. Both, why is it ha- in, in the United States? Like both, why is it happening? And also like, is it happening or happening to what extent? So we can tell from like some very cool research on members of Congress ideology because they vote on bills and you can say, did they support a democratic bill or not? We can see that Congress has become more polarized, like way more left. There's no overlap. We hear that in the news, right? Yeah. But it turns out Americans maybe are not in the sense that most Americans are pretty moderate. Like they want some gun control. They want reasonably fair access, affordable access to abortion if you need it, and so on. Yeah. yeah. And the, the difference, we think, is that it's more often, it's called party sorting, which is that it used to be the case that some Republicans would be kind of liberal on a few things, and some Democrats would be kind of conservative, and that's gone away. So we're not more extreme, but we've sorted into our camps a little bit better, where it's like, mm-hmm. if I'm liberal on abortion, I'm also liberal on all the other issues. Right. Like if, if I tell you how I feel about gun control, you know with a high degree of certainty how I feel about everything else that's in the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the piece that has changed. And that's causing something called affective polarization, which means we hate each other more. Right. So we're not further apart, but we yell. Yeah. That was sort of a meandering. But it's like once you're in those separate camps, I think the change from one to the other requires something pretty fucking huge. Yeah. Yeah. But like within the, you know, the left, I shift. I have friends who are way far left of me and I have friends who are moderate compared to me. I have very few friends, sadly, I think, who are quite conservative. Right. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And 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 I would have to interact with them a lot. The thinking is you have to interact with the other side a lot. Even calling it the other side is some problematic. You'd have to interact with the other side a lot to like be persuaded by them and we're just not getting that exposure anymore. Yeah. Right. So um every every year I go down to South Carolina and I enjoy it because my uh I have a good family friend who lives down there and she grew up with my she's my one of my mom's friends. So they grew up together in kind of the, a liberal or at least a democratic enclave in Toledo, Ohio. So like, that's her background. She comes from there. She then like, you know, got married is an accountant who lives in Georgia. And so like, has done this shift into conservative Republicanism. She's not super conservative. But it is interesting going down there because we it is some of the most interesting conversations that I have about politics. Because there you you it's not just a yes, and yes, and yes, and conversation. It's like, there's, there's always difference. And there's always like, that's an interesting perspective. What does that mean for me? Like, what does that mean to me and my beliefs about what I think about abortion or what I think about? And sometimes I hear it and I'm like, what does that mean? That that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's like excuse making or whatever. But it, can, it I'm forced to confront my own ideas yep. and beliefs because they're being held up against this other person's ideas and beliefs that are opposite. And there are yeah. things that we like we agree on. So it's a lot of times it's just about taking the breath and listening to what's going on. Yeah. yeah. And w- you don't that doesn't mean you have to agree with what's happening or what's being said to yep. you. It just means giving people space. And I think, you know, overall, that's part of the polarization is that we're not able to do that because we're living in these bubbles and that we don't want to do that because we like, you know, the It's painful. It's, it's painful. painful. To, yeah. 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 But it's it's like we we want that. We don't want to to acknowledge that our beliefs are wrong and that our fundamental structures are incorrect is like there are there's like a whole psychological 
Yes. Yeah. Underpinning that has to happen. Like it's yeah. it's you're taking you're stripping yourself away of your identity, right? Yeah. Exactly. And like, how do you ask somebody to do that? Yeah. That's well, and there's hard. some thinking in in political science about like just people having a political identity in the first place, and if that's becoming more closely intertwined with our personal identity. So mm. like, right. You know, maybe 50 years ago, that's still speculation. We weren't, it wasn't personal what I thought we should do, you know, as far as foreign policy or the environment or whatever. I'm trying to think of the, the words we would have used back then. But it wasn't, but if you disagreed with me, we were still talking about some third party thing. Right. That wasn't right, really yeah. about either of us. And now it's like, it feels very personal. And it's my, part of my identity is to be a Democrat or a liberal or whatever. And then it becomes an assault on me, yeah. right? not just on my intelligence and my worldview. And if all my views are linked, and someone says actually and persuades me that my views on, say, the Second Amendment are wrong. And I sw- it's like, well, if that's true, then it becomes the what else is true. Right. And do I have to then dismantle everything that I believe right. um, all around? The one thing that the story you told of um, your family friend is a really good one. And it's a good example of the one other area of hope that I have, which is like, you know, there still are people who interact with people with different views from our own. I think it's important to do that. I wish I did more of it. I probably should. Uh, try to do more of it actively but it's like it's it's I forget the term but in political science we have it it's like it's like something like an ideal informant or something it's Mm. not that sexy sounding that sounds really cool but it's like (laughs) if you want to persuade someone like where do you start well find someone who you agree with on nine out of ten issues and you can talk about that tenth because you can agree that the PPP is a mess and that we all want to deal with this and this is wrong and that's wrong and then like you can kind of persuade. So I have a, uh, an example that I talk about a lot too, which was I was on a, uh, this is the most like white woman thing in the world, but I was on a yoga retreat in Love. India. Mm-hmm. Congrats. Yeah. Namaste. Just, I'm just stopping the recording now. Namaste. So I hope your, your chakras are good. But I was there with a bunch of people from my hometown. I'm from Western Maryland, which is a, like, I'm from a very conservative county in a blue state. And I was there with uh, some friends from high school and like their mothers. It was this whole thing. Anyway, one of them, uh, the mothers, I didn't know, but we spent a couple of days together. We're talking a lot. I really liked her. And eventually she mentioned, she was like, oh, I'm a huge Second Amendment supporter. I feel very strongly that guns are like an American right. I grew up with guns. I have a farm. We use our guns. We're proud of our guns. We this, we use it safely, blah, blah, blah. And only because we had built this. And again, this is only over a couple of days that we had the, the, the same hometown and, and, and shared experiences, but I didn't know her. Um, but only because we had built this trust away from politics did it become just like a great conversation? And frankly, I didn't try to persuade her. She didn't try to persuade mm-hmm. me. We were just okay with our differences. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that like, that might be the best we can do for now. Yeah. But the other thing to think about that I wonder about a lot is like, when we disagree, are we disagreeing on like the ultimate goal for the country? Right. Or are we disagreeing on how to get there? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, that's so interesting. I get really, depending on my, you know, my food intake for the day and and my emotions, I either get really annoyed or very angry at Mm -hmm. media when they break down the Democratic Party into like the Biden moderates and the Bernie liberals. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. that is not accurate. You know, like, I I just don't. That's not, you know, or or when they did it with Hillary and, and Bernie, because I. You know, like my views are pretty left, but I don't I am much more. I'm from the Midwest. I'm a very practical person. So like mm-hmm. during the democratic debates, you could have asked if the question was, what is your goal for this particular issue? 
nine times out of ten, most of the people on that stage would have agreed on the goal. Right. Right? Like, we want everybody to be able to go to the doctor and have affordable health insurance. Everybody agrees on that goal. It's the path to get there. And if you take somebody like Amy Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar's bill, you know, like, her plan is more likely to pass and more immediate. Yeah. But the point of it is, is, like, they want the same goal. Is it more pra- like what is the yeah. what is the most good in the long run? And this yeah. is like a very Sam Harris thing to ask. Like what is the what is the most good that can be done? Are you doing the most good with a bill that doesn't go as far but happens but is more likely to pass and happens yep. sooner or yep. a bill that is costs a lot of money has literally no chance of passing. Yep. But would give everybody essentially low cost healthcare or free right. healthcare, even if your taxes are, you know, the offsets, whatever, right. blah, blah, blah. If, if you, you agree on the funding of it and the economics right. of it. Well, like, and I think, I think, and I think on the economic side and on the game theory side, you could in principle put numbers around that and find out like, it's right. just an expected value calculation. Like how good is it? And what's the probability of it happening? And you could do that. We would then argue, and I think we are arguing over what, what the true values are. Right. And right. so a Bernie person would say that it doesn't go far enough. So even if it, the probability it passes is one, I don't care because right. it's not enough, right? right. I would rather right. make a statement and move views another way, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. yeah. Can I ask you one question that's like a data science question? Always. <laughs> this, is, this is the best Sunday of my life. Yeah, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> no one's asking me these questions. So, you know, in the 2016 election, when we were looking at all of the polls, right? And then everybody was following the polls. What's, you know, Nate Silver saying? What's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the election happened and everybody was like, the polls are wrong. They're wrong. We're not listening to them anymore. Lizzie has said this many times. We're not listening to them just, anymore. They're wrong. The polls stress and me out. <laughs> they stress her out. They are stressful. I will give you that. Yeah. But my response to that is always like, okay, but who are they polling? Like, what's the population? Like, if you actually look at the, the I'm polls. I'm so glad you're asking about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The polls that happened on the national level, not the state levels, but the national polls, they were right. Right? Like, Hillary won that popular vote in the 2016 election by that percentage. So the national polls are accurate. So I, you know, it's a lot of work to parse through the polls and like 538 does a great job of ranking various polling organizations. But, you know, I, as somebody who like values data and I, you know, I watched the conference that you, you did, you're very much like, we got to use data the right way, right? Like we have to look at what it's telling us, but we can't like fundamentally, like it can't be the be all end all of everything. How do you use how do you reconcile that with like a political campaign system that is now fundamentally reliant on polls, not only to tell the voters what to do, but the candidates like own internal polls of how well they're oh, doing yeah. with various right. groups. Right. Yeah. How, it's like, a huge industry. It's yeah. a huge industry. Yeah. yeah. So like how one do of you- my, one of my friends from grad school is actually the, um, one of the head, if not the head data scientist for the Klobuchar campaign. Actually. Oh, oh wow. So, like, so PhDs in political science, kids <laughs> can help you run a, <laughs> semi-short-lived presidential campaign. I love that. So there you go. So uh, a bit of disclosure. So I worked at 538 for a year and a half for uh, the midterm election forecast. So mm. not 2016. We can <laughs> back that up. I can unpack that more, but I was not involved. Okay, <laughs> number one. But I did work uh, to help them prepare uh, for the um, 2018 midterm election. Mm. So uh, uh, but even before that, there's still a data science question in there, but I learned a lot more about the polls and who they poll and the methodologies. And I was involved in helping upgrade their poll ranking system. So mm. I would like 
call the pollsters, ask them about their methods. What are you doing? How are you doing it? Blah, 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 blah. So here's, here's what I have to say, and this is my view, not 538's view by any stretch, is it's, it's as accurate as, <laughs> it's as accurate as we can get, given that it's a really hard thing to do. Mm. Right. And I do think that, you know, in 538's defense, and this is why I, I preface that to say I am a little bit biased to be on their side, um, because they paid me, uh, is there, it's a probabilistic outcome. And so, you know, if it's a 60, uh, humans, we know this from behavioral economics and our own lives, humans are very bad at understanding probability. So if I say there's a 60% chance that Hillary wins and Hillary loses, we're like, oh, the polls were wrong. Right. But if you have a coin that you flip and it's slightly weighted, sometimes you're going to get tails, even if you think you're biased towards heads. Like, that's just how it goes. Right. I will say that places that did things like Hillary has a 100% chance of winning are dumb. And they shouldn't have done that. And whatever model they had was wrong because yep. nothing is that certain in a social world ever, right? And, you know, the, even if the probabilities are higher, 90% chance of Hillary winning, the path that Trump ultimately took, exactly as you said, the popular vote went largely in the way that the polls thought. The path was so unusual. And it was like, he has to like thread the needle in this very specific way. Mm -hmm. And he did. And that's just a very unlikely outcome. But it's like, I'm so, so depressing, but like cancer is an unlikely outcome, but people get it, right? right? Like it's just, and yeah, sure. I'll live with the analogy that he's a cancer. Let's go. Okay. Right. <laughs> but the polls themselves, they're, they're, they're flawed in that it's hard to reach everybody. Um, and from a data science perspective, here are the problems. Uh, one, figuring out who to reach and how to reach is really hard. So how do I get a random sample, which is what we want? of Americans. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of pollsters do things like randomly generated phone numbers, which should be more or less orthogonal, which is to say unrelated to someone's political leanings. Like if my number has a nine in it, that shouldn't say anything about who I'm going to vote for. So pretty good. Right. Problem is not everyone, uh, a lot of polls still, it's getting better, but a lot of polls still rely on landline numbers, mm. which is insane. So who are you polling when you're reaching someone on a landline? That's None a particular demographic not, that might skew left or right. Certainly not me. No. Or even if they have cell phones, how many people are going to answer the phone when a number you don't know calls? Absolutely right. not. And they can leave a message. Exactly. Exactly. And how many people, even if you do answer, if someone starts a spiel that says, I'm the so-and-so from the pollster, are going to actually listen? Right. And then how many people, suppose they are reached, they, they, the phone number is picked, it's a, it's a phone that they have, it's a phone that they pick up, it's a phone that they listen to the opening spiel, are then going to give an honest answer. Right. Because... Some of the evidence that we have that people lie all the fucking time is that if you call someone right now, this is like selection bias, response bias, like all these methods around data collection that, you know, plague polls and any empirical research about humans mm -hmm. are like, you know, if I when we ask people like, do you vote? Did you vote in the last election? Like 80 percent of people will say, yeah. But then if you look. Like forty percent of people voted, so yeah. everyone's lying to us, right? Yeah. Yep. My concern in Trump, and I was not involved in in the in the in five thirty eight or any polling. I was just a regular political scientist at that time. But my concern was response bias around Trump. So mm. people lie and say that they vote or are going to vote or did vote because it's a social desirable uh, like behavior, socially desirable behavior. In twenty sixteen, supporting Trump was relatively unpopular in like mainstream and i say this with some caveats that i live in a bubble that's anti-trump right, right? Mm -hmm. but it was a relatively like scary thing to confess and that was kind of why we were so surprised is that so so it's socially desirable to not so i, I was worried that people were not admitting they were going to vote for trump who fully planned to vote for trump now i hope the polls are a little bit more accurate because it's become 
for complicated, better or worse, whatever, more normalized mm. to support Trump. People who right. support him can kind of go out and say it and say it with pride. And he won the election. So why not be proud of that? Right. Right. So I'm hoping that people are going to be a little bit more honest. And maybe you could imagine the flip side if you're in the Democratic Party and Biden is like the safe, maybe, but unpopular. And at least in my liberals, super liberal circles, you know, the the sexual assault allegations like are, are like I would never vote for him based on that alone. I know many people who, who feel that way. And I haven't personally made up my mind, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Right. If I am called and someone says, are you going to vote for Biden? I don't know. I I my answer probably is yes, but I don't know what I would say over the phone, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, mm. But again, it's not that like, this isn't to say, and this is that, that video that you're referring to, it's like, that doesn't mean that polls are garbage. And it doesn't mean that it's no information. But it means that we need to take into account the various levers by which that information might get warped or biased based on who I'm reaching and how likely they are to tell me the truth. And how accurate I am. I'm, my ability to predict my behavior in November is low, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what yeah. I'm going to, you know, I mean, I know I'm not going to vote for Trump, but who knows, right? Right. I'm definitely going to vote for whoever the Democrat is. Okay, fine. I can <laughs> give you some certainty there. Um, so it's, it's, again, it's not that they're wrong, but it's, you know, the error bars around them right. are, are serious and they yeah. can be biased. So it's not like just noise plus or minus three. It could be definitely plus seven because no one is admitting that they support Trump or right. whatever. Yeah, I try to like if I see a number on my phone that like if I if I am in a I I tend I do get poll like calls for polls not infrequently. How? I wish I got one from Pew and it was awesome. Oh, that's that awesome. Yeah, I uh, no, I get them. I get them a lot for city and state things. And so I love when the questions are like, we're going to ask you about the governor, the governor and de Blasio and the police. And I'm like, oh, my God, I know. Bring it study. on. Honey. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me that count sounds the so ways. cathartic. But I you know, like I try. If I have the time, I try to do it because I know how valuable it is to the people and to that poor person on the other end of the line who's like, I got one. You know, it's like they yeah. must just be so excited to, like, have somebody finish the thing. The other part of it, like, if you, you know, take all of that into account. And this is just because I've spent four years in an undergraduate an undergraduate classes, like listening to statistics and stuff and, and how you construct a, a, a poll is that sometimes the questions I'm like who wrote this for you like these are horrible questions because they're either they're leading in their construction so like you know the words that they use indicate the way that they want you to answer yep or like, like you're not racist are you right you know? like, obviously <laughs> right. we hope people say no say no but, you know right yeah or it's like or they'll be like do you have a do you approve or disapprove of Cuomo and you're like what are my options? They're like, yes or yeah. no. And I'm like, okay, I need a scale. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, give me one to 10. Give me a one to 10. And then I 10. will say 11 because and I'm obsessed. Uh, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. I, and then I'm going to break your fucking scale. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But like, or if you take his state budget into account and the cuts he's making, you could factor sure. that in. There's like a whole thing. But, right. But, right. The, you know, right. there are questions that they ask that I've been asked that I'm like, I get what you want, but none of my my answer yeah. is none of these options. And so yeah. then you're like trying to fit and I like I'll ask and I'll be like, you know, do I have any can I say this? Can I say this answer? And yeah. they'll be like, you can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then so you're having to fit your answer into one of their categories, which like yeah. I'm an intelligent enough person who understands what they're looking for. Like and yeah. clearly if I've made it this far in this survey, I've decided I have the time. But yeah. it also is just like kind of a fundamental flaw in polling, which is like you can't always capture 
because you need a yes. data set to be a certain size. You're not going to capture everybody's like exact yeah. sentiment, feeling, whatever yes. on any yes. given topic because you need to be able to work with data. Well, and that goes back to the whole like, I mean, honestly, what one of the big challenges around political science is like we are trying to take things that are super complicated and complex and dynamic and changing and uncertain and personal and and like I, things like ideals and values and beliefs and all this stuff. Uh, and they're not and, and turn them into simple numbers and then say something about the world using those numbers. And that process of simplification is unfortunately it's very useful because it allows us to make summary statements like people are more likely to vote for so-and-so than someone else or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it means, yes, yeah, stripping down a lot of like the really important sophistication that a lot of people have or complexities, right? And so Cuomo yep. is a great example where it's like, you know, on this issue, he has high approval. Maybe people don't care for what he's done on other things. And it's, it goes back to even this, this spectrum we were talking about before with ideology is like, you know, we can place people on a spectrum from super left to super right, but that doesn't capture political beliefs. You need more than one dimension yeah. to yeah. talk about nuances. And so, you know, designing a survey that captures those beliefs in a meaningful way, but doesn't take six hours, you right. know, in a therapist's right. couch right. <laughs> is really hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And it's like, it's almost my, my most, my most cynical and most hopeful around political science are like both of those things at once. Whereas like, it's cool to take all the chaos in the world and turn it into a number and say, people are pretty into what this guy is doing. Or people are really discouraged by what's happening. And mm. we can use that information. But it's also, we're oversimplifying. Yeah. And it's unfair to say that this person is like the one that we're all going to vote for and we're definitely going to vote for them and they're not problematic and this and that and the other thing. And so right. it's both satisfying and frustrating at the same time. Yeah. But to, to bring it back full circle to, to where we started, you know, this idea that, that, oh, Americans don't know anything about politics. Maybe humans don't know anything about politics. We're not sophisticated, blah, blah, blah. Part of it is like, should we be? Should right. every American mm. be responsible for understanding the nuances of climate change and how to tackle it and how to handle Iran and whether to engage or distance ourselves from China and even decide how much we should be socially distanced or whatever? And the answer is probably not, because we have other things to think about. Right. right. And so hopefully, again, this goes back to like having leaders that will make that decision for us. So I can listen to Cuomo and not decide that it's six feet, not five feet that I right. need to be away from someone. Right. Because right. I could think about that for the next six weeks and come up with probably the same answer. Right. right. Andrea, this was seriously, I don't know if you can tell, but if I had had a glass of wine, like I would, I could talk to you forever. It like, is just forever. so fun. Careful what you wish for, because I am free. <laughs> all we are all not busy. <laughs> we are yeah. not busy. I mean, like, I, I seriously, I, this has been so much fun, and I am, it's, I, this was such a joy. So thank you for coming. Yeah. On. yeah. Well, you both joy. asked amazing questions that honestly, I've been waiting my whole life to be asked, like, including from like my parents, you know, my loved <laughs> <Yeah>. ones. <laughs> we we saw you. We heard you. We see. You. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. Well, I see both of you, and you are a blessing to this country. Thank you so, there so you much. Go. Yes. Sweet. Yes. Yeah. Do you have anything that you want to plug uh, other than your YouTube show before we? Just the YouTube show. Right. It's uh, and you can let's see, follow me on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff, and I almost exclusively talk about that and the occasional comedy and circus show. Perfect. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> 
Andrea, thank you so much for being on. Uh, to our sweet, sweet listeners, uh, we love you so, so much. And if you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. You can also, if you would, rate us, review us, subscribe to us. We love you so, so much, and we will see you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.